Welcome, brothers and sisters in the faith, to another episode of the BHP, the Bible History Project. And our lesson for tonight, we will be focusing on the third seal, the rider on a black horse. Now, before we go ahead and proceed, let's first offer a prayer of thanksgiving. Everlasting Father, merciful and gracious Abba Yahuwah, your people gather before your presence once again to offer you praises and thanksgiving. You indeed are the owner of our life. If there's anything that we can do, we attribute this to your source, to you be praise and glory forever. Father, we will now study your holy words and commands. We beseech you to please prepare our hearts and our minds that we may receive with faith and may we receive with power through your Holy Spirit, the teachings that will guide us. Our King Yahushua, we implore you to please be with us. May you strengthen our faith once again. May you please remember everyone assembled together this evening, especially those who are enduring pain and tribulation and suffering, those who go through many difficult times in this life. May you please give us peace of mind. May you comfort and strengthen us that we may endure until the very end. Father, we believe that you have listened to our prayers. You have cleansed our souls and our hearts. We ask and beg everything, Abba, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahushua HaMashiach. Amen. Okay, praises be to our loving Father that we are able again to study His words and His commands. And so tonight we will continue with the study of the book of Revelation. We are currently in Revelation chapter 6 and we are going through the seals of the book of Revelation. Last week we talked about the fulfillment of the second seal and before that we talked about the fulfillment of the first seal by way of review if you still remember the first seal the rider on the white horse that was fulfilled when papal supremacy was granted uh, to the bishops of rome hence the establishment of pontiff powers or papal powers that was in 534 a.d last week we talked about the rider of the red horse which was fulfilled in islamic terrorism and so we can see the pattern we began with 534 A.D. and then to 800 A.D. And so if the seal events are sequential, we can expect that the next event is going to take place after 800 A.D. Exactly when? Well, that is what we're going to find out today. And so let's go ahead and look at the event that represents the opening of the third seal. In Revelation 6, 5 down to 6, when the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come, I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. So that is what is going to happen after the third seal is broken or open. So what we have is a rider on what horse? A black horse, not a red horse, not a white horse, but a black horse. So this person or whoever this represents is distinct from the other horses. And the rider holds a pair of scales in his hand. This represents some kind of authority, some kind of power. And this rider on the black horse is going to do something that will cause 
the statement that is mentioned by one of the four living creatures, a quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. So what we have in summary, we have a rider on the black horse with a pair of scales in his hand, a quart of wheat for a day's wages, three quarts of wheat or three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. So what is the meaning of the third seal event? Well, there are various interpretations, of course, and today we're going to share with you three interpretations. The third one is what I endorse and believe in. Of course, you don't have to agree with what I believe in, but let's go ahead and look at three different interpretations. First interpretation being the one offered by the last Chronicles, which we discussed previously, is according to this Facebook page, is written or endorsed by the Iglesia de Cristo. And this is their Facebook page. The publisher is Iglesia de Cristo. And when we turn to that website called the Last Chronicles, it will feature, for example, the third seal. So according to the Last Chronicles, what is the interpretation of the third seal event? Let's go ahead and read. This is what it says. Let us now study what events took place when the third seal was opened by the Lamb. And so they read Revelation 6, 5 to 6. We read that same passage already. The third seal is about the black horse. Its rider had a pair of weighing scales used for weighing wheat and barley. He also had the power to harm the oil and the wine. And because he works in pitch blackness, the message of the dark horse is the period of the dark Egypt. So according to the last Chronicles, the third seal, because it is a black horse, refers to a period called the Dark Ages. And why is it a black horse? And why does why do they refer to it as the Dark Ages? Let's keep reading the explanation. We already know that our Lord Jesus Christ created a new man with Christ as the head and the church as his body to make peace with God. Thus the light of the world refers to our Lord Jesus Christ and the Church of Christ. The oil that gives them light are the words of God. If you so remember, according to the last Chronicles, the fulfillment of the second seal event is complete apostasy, which took away the peace from God. In the second seal, as explained, our Lord Jesus Christ had already ascended to heaven. The members of the first century church were attacked by fierce wolves. They encountered great persecution and the flock was not spared. So the true and faithful members suffered death. Those who survived uh, were turned away from the true faith by false preachers from among them. The spirit of true Christianity died. Hence, the organization that continued became an apostate church. Satan's religion was established, the Catholic Church. Sacred peace with God was lost and so are the lights of the world. So according to the last Chronicles, Yahushua, the Christ, and the members of the true Church of Christ, they represent the light of the world because Yahushua went to heaven and the members of the true Church of Christ were completely turned away from the faith or were put to death. Guess what? There's no longer the presence of light except for the word of God. And so because there was still the word of God or the, the Holy Bible that was present, there was still light in the world. And so according to the last Chronicles, what would eventually happen? Let's read. 
uh, from their explanation, Satan's preachers were likened to wandering stars and clouds without rain, which means that they did not have the words of God. Feeding only themselves means preaching the commands and teachings of men out of God. What they did with God's laws and commandments, such that darkness reigned all over the world, our Lord Jesus Christ himself revealed this through prophecy. And so before I read uh, Revelation 11, take note that the, the question asked is, what made the world dark? It is the absence of Yahushua, the absence of the true Christians, according to them, right? And also uh, the absence of the word of God. And so how was the word of God removed during the third seal? And then they quote Revelation 11, which takes place right before the seventh seal. And so already we can see they're out of sequence. But let's go ahead and read Revelation 11, 3 to 4, 3 to 4 and 6 to 12 nonetheless. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of the prophecy, and they have power over water to turn into blood and strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them, and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. And so what needed to happen, or what did the Catholic Church do, uh, so that the Word of God, which is a source of light, will no longer bring illumination upon the world, hence the black horse, or the dark ages. Well, according to the explanation, of the last chronicles are going to put to death the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. Why is that? According to their explanation, because the white of the black horse would not destroy God's words, he lashed out on the two witnesses. Now, who are the two witnesses? The beast that came out from the abyss fought the two witnesses until they were defeated and killed the two witnesses who were dressed in sackcloth and heard the words of God in and had the words of God in them were the Old and New Testament were in all of God's plan since the creation of heaven and earth were written. So according to the last Chronicles, the two witnesses, who are they? The Old Testament and the New Testament. And so according to them, the Catholic Church is going to kill the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so when the Old Testament and New Testament are out of the way, there's going to be complete darkness in 
the world. And how was this fulfilled by the Catholic Church according to the last chronicles? Let's read, uh, Father Jose Burgos, a priest executed by Garote, had written this in his book, Are Miracles Real? And he quote, they quote, thousands of copies of the Holy Bible found in different places where the Roman religion reigned were burned. So the Roman Catholic Church thus killed the Old and New Testament. And according to the prophecy, their corpses were laid out in the streets and seen by multitudes, nations, tribes, tongues, and cities, while people reveled and offered gifts. The two books sat on the altar where priests conducted masses to be watched by everyone, but the books were lifeless for they had been translated into a dead language. So according to the last chronicles, how did the Catholic Church kill the two witnesses, which happens to be what again? The Old Testament and the New Testament, which represents, of course, the Holy Bible or the words of God. So basically they're saying the Catholic Church well, they killed the words of God. And so when the words of God has been snuffed out, has been killed, well, there's going to be darkness upon the face of the earth. Because after all, Yahushua is in heaven. There's no more true Christianity. And the words of God, well, they have been killed. And if you so remember the prophecy, how long uh, were the words of God supposed to be dead for? Or how long were the two witnesses supposed to be dead for? Three and a half days okay and so if the if it's true that the bible or the new testament and the new the old testament and the new testament represent the two witnesses and they were put to death by the catholic church well then isn't it supposed to be for only how long now for three and a half days there's only they're only supposed to be dead for three and a half days because after three and a half days what happened to the two witnesses they stood upon their feet and then they ascended to heaven. So the Bible ascended to heaven after three and a half days of being dead. That does not make sense. It is just their imagination. And so how, what does that mean then? That the New Testament and the Old Testament after three and a half days are going to resurrect and ascend to heaven. Well, according to their explanation, However, when the time comes, the two witnesses, the Old Testament, New Testament, would be resurrected by God. They would be awakened and rise. Take note, they do not mention it's three and a half days, do they? Because they will not be able to explain that. Our Father would lift them up in the clouds, which represents a preacher. And so the resurrection of the Old Testament and the New Testament represents a coming of a preacher sent to preach the word of God, right? The waterless cloud, which does not carry the word of God, are those who preach Satan's teachings. The cloud were in the old, and the New Testament have ascended on what's sent by God. We will discuss its fulfillment further at the end of the sixth seal. Well, why will the resurrection take place at the sixth seal when the death of the word of God is in the third seal, and after three days, it's going to be the, the resurrection of the Old Testament and New Testament. Again, it's out of sync with the sequence of the book of Revelation or out of sync of the sequence of the seals mentioned in Revelation. And how about the scale? What does that represent? Well, let's go ahead and look at what we have to say. This is again from last Chronicles. It is clear then that the era of the black horse is pitch darkness. 
This is because the lights and their source are lost. The Roman pontiff of the Roman Catholic Church is the one riding the black horse, carrying a weighing scale. Let us find out the meaning of the scale and where it is used. And so they quote Hosea 12 verse 7. Question, is there a connection between Revelation 6 and Hosea 12? What do you think? There's none. <laughs> there is none. And so they jump from one passage to the next passage. And then they quote Hosea 12 verse 7. The merchant uses this honest scales. He loves to defraud. And what is her conclusion? The weighing scale is used in market and trading. And this is the, the ironic part of it all. Look at their interpretation. Therefore, the Pope and his religion are merchants. Hmm. <laughs> they're accusing the Catholic Church for being merchants. And they're using Revelation 6 and Hosea 12 to give light to that fact. And so their main objective were commerce and earthly riches. Religion would be used as a front for business. Our very own great hero, Dr. Jose Rizal, had a testimony on how the papacy and its priests exploited their religion. Even devout Catholics cannot refute the truth in his pronouncement in his letter to the young women of Malolos. If you have time, I want you to go ahead and actually go to Last Chronicles and read what they have to say, because it's really ironic. And it really kind of points back to them, right? And so anyways, they use Hosea 12, verse 7, and it mentions the merchant uses dishonest scales and loves to defraud. And so their, their conclusion is the papacy, or the Catholic Church, is going to use business and exploit the religion to create money for themselves. And so to conclude, this is what they say, darkness became more widespread because of the rider of the black horse turned everything into profit, driven by the love of material wealth and power. Aside from killing the two witnesses, he also used wine, a symbol of prosperity and influence, to establish an adulterous relation with the leaders of different nations and acquire even more wealth due to avarice. We have thus proven that the dark horse rider symbolizes the Roman pontiff and the priests of the Roman Catholic Church. And so let's put this to the test. Why do we not believe the interpretation given by the last chronicles? That's because they have to accept the fact that for there to be a period of darkness, represented by the black horse, the word of God would have to be killed off. The word of God has to pass away because so long as the word of God is still there, you cannot have complete darkness, can you? This is why we don't believe that the fulfillment is the papacy riding on a black horse, bringing darkness because they killed the words of God. Why? Can the words of God be truly killed? In the book of 1 Peter 1.25, but the word of Yahuwah endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. In Isaiah 40 verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. In Matthew 24, Yahushua himself says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Well, how come 
was a historian who says that the Catholic Church burned the Old Testament and the New Testament. Do you agree then that they completely removed in totality the word of God? No. What's the proof? They were not able to do that. We have the Bible today. We have the Bible today. Was the Bible around during the days of Brother Felix Manala? Yeah. Was the Bible around before the birth of Brother Felix Manala? Yeah. Was the Bible around during the Dark Ages? Yes. The Word of God was preserved miraculously by Yahuwah. Yes, there were many attempts to remove the Bible, but it cannot and will never prevail because the Bible says the Word of God, it is going to endure forever. And Yahushua says, my words will by no means pass away. Now, let's go ahead and look at what they say concerning the use of scales. And so the Bible says in Hosea, the merchant uses dishonest scales. When we look at Revelation 6, 5 to 6, is this about dishonest scales? No, this has nothing to do with dishonest scales. It mentions holding a pair of scales in his hand. Does it mean the one represented by the writer who holds the pair of scales in his hand going to make himself rich by engaging in business ventures? That's not what the Bible says. We have to look at what it actually says. It does not say he's going to commercialize. It does not say he's going to set up businesses in the guise of religion. That's not what the passage says. What does it actually say? It says a quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. This is not about setting up a business. This is not about merchandise. It's about something else. This is why the interpretation of last chronicles, it does not stand scrutiny. It will fail when you analyze it and when we, when you look at it. So that was one interpretation, but the most popular interpretation is that Revelation 6, 5 to 6 is actually a great famine. When you look at people who study the Holy Scriptures, and when they read the book of Revelation, the conclusion is this has to be referring to a great famine. But is the third seal really referring to a great famine? Well, when you look at Revelation 6, 5 to 6, you don't find the word famine there at all, do you? Yeah, we have a pair of scales in his hand, but what does that actually mean? What is the Greek word behind scales? It mentions a quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. Does that really refer to famine? It could. And if this was referring to famine, we would not be against it, but we have to identify which famine. Because when we remember the seal events, one of the characteristics of seal events is it's historically significant, unprecedented, and it leads to the generation of new ideas and philosophies, remember? And so there's always been famine in history, but what kind of famine is this if it is a famine? There's a reason why I don't believe that the third seal is actually famine. Why? Because when you open the fourth seal, it actually mentions the word famine. 
And so it's not until the fourth seal where a famine is brought to our attention. So if the third seal was actually a famine, then why would the Bible not disclose that information? In the fourth seal, it does. But in the third seal, it does not. And so it is referring to something else. And so what does it refer to? What do the events of the third seal refer to? We know it doesn't represent the papacy, who's going to set up businesses. And although when we, that's not going to happen until later on, because other scriptures reveal that truth. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about the third seal, right? So it's not the papacy. It's also probably not famine. And so what could it be? Well, let's go ahead and look at the details of the seal events, because there's a reason why every detail is brought or included in the Holy Scriptures. And so we must examine the details and look at it closely, because nothing in Scripture is there by accident. Every detail matters. And so let's look at what the Bible says. It mentions, first of all, we need to identify the possible location of the fulfillment of this event. And it gives us some clues because it mentions wheat, it mentions barley, it mentions oil, it mentions wine. When you have oil, you have olive trees, right? When you have wine, you have grape vines, right? And so we're looking at places where the crops produced by this region is wheat, barley, and, and uh, olive trees, and grape vines. And so let's look at history during these times. Remember, this event is supposed to take place after 800 AD. This is what we have to, uh, to report to you. The regions have produced both wheat and barley as major crops during that time, Canada, Alaska, Northern Europe, Western Europe, Southern Europe, Eastern Europe, European uh, Russia, Asiatic Russia, Northern Africa, the Middle East, Central Asia, and Australia and New Zealand. So those are possible potential places of the fulfillment of the prophecy, the prophecy, the third seal event. But it's not just about the wheat and barley, right? It's also about the olives. It's also about the grapes. So according to geographic distribution of major crops, research showed that the regions that produce both olives and grapes are Southern Europe and the Middle East. So when we consider all four of these crops, we come up with Southern Europe, Middle East, as possibilities of the fulfillment of this prophecy. So far, that's what we have to build on. But let's go look at the other details of scriptures. Remember, the rider on the black horse is holding a pair of scales in his hand. And so what does it mean? that this writer holds a pair of scales in his hand. When we look at the Greek word for scale or a pair of balances, what does it actually refer to? Let's look at the Greek word. It's the Greek word 2218, zygos. And the Greek word zygos has certain definitions. What does it actually mean? Does it mean scale? You'd be surprised. But what the Bible actually reveals, this is what it says, what is the meaning of zygos or pair of scales? It doesn't say pair of scales, does it? It is a secondary definition. 
the main definition is a yoke, a metaphor used by any burden or bondage as that of slavery. As a matter of fact, the word zygos metaphorically denotes bondage as that of slavery. It is translated as yoke in five places, only five places in the Holy Bible. And only once, and it's in Revelation, the passage that we read is the passage translated as a pair of balances or a pair of scales. And so in actuality, the choosing of the English word scale or balance goes against what it actually means in Greek. In Greek, it actually means slavery. It is a yoke. So the rider of the black horse is carrying some type of yoke. He's carrying or represents a type of system that will create slavery. In other words, it is a type of oppressive system. And so is it referring to slavery? Well, it could, but if it, it, if it is referring to slavery, we would have to answer some questions. It is likely related to slavery because when you think of oppression, we think of people who are weak and are unable to fight for their rights. And of course, this, the word slavery comes to mind. It could be a modified form of slavery, but how can we know for sure? Let's keep looking at the clues given to us by the Holy Bible. It mentions a day's wages, right? A quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages. And so we have here an oppressive system that is able to determine a laborer's wages, okay? Not only that, this oppressive system is not only able to determine and influence a laborer's wages, it also is able to declare, it says here, do not damage the oil and the wine. In some translations, do not hurt the oil and the wine. Now, what does that mean? Do not hurt the oil or the, and the wine. Do not damage the oil and the wine. When we look at the word, see thou hurt, okay, it's the Greek word 91, adikeo, which actually means to act unjustly or wickedly to sin, to be a criminal, to do wrong. It's kind of weird, it's kind of way off from what we have in the English translation, right? It's to declare something wicked, unjust, forbidden. And so what we have so far from the Holy Scriptures is this oppressive system that is represented by the writer of the Black Horse suggests that some people were not allowed access to oil and wine. And if they attempted to possess or consume oil or wine, then such an act must have been deemed sinful, unrighteous, and violating the prohibitive regulation. And so we need to look further into that. Is that slavery? Well, first of all, we can rule out slavery as we understand it today. Why? Because when we look again at Revelation 6, 5 to 6, it mentions a quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages. When the Bible says 
says a day's wages, what does that mean? Whoever's laboring is being paid. Slaves do not have a wage. That's why they're called slaves. This is why the fact it mentions a day's wages means this is not slavery. This is something else. It is oppressive to the point that it can be considered slavery, but it's not uh, slavery as we understand it today because they are being paid and they're being paid a day's wage. And so when we look at how much they're being paid, when you look at it, a quarter, a quart of wheat for a day's wages, normally, according to scholars back during this time, a quart of wheat for a day's wages, this person is being underpaid. Because usually, a day's wage will be able to buy you about eight quarts of wheat. And so this person who's laboring is getting a cheap, very, very cheap labor. Whoever owns or whoever is employing these people, they're getting cheap labor. They're exploiting the laborers because a day's wage can only buy you a quart of wheat. As a matter of fact, according to uh, some researchers, the laborers deserve to get paid eight times more of wheat as daily wage compared to what is stated in Revelation 6.6. 6. In the situation of the third seal, the laborer's earning was only limited to one measure of wheat for his day's labor. And so what we have is an oppressive system that allowed for the systematic exploitation of certain laborers and made access to luxurious and made access to luxurious items like oil and wine restricted. So what could this oppressive system that was established after 800 AD, what could this have been? Well, we get a clue from what happened during the second seal. Remember in the second seal, um, there was an establishment of uh, terrorism, jihad, which we of course know is an Islamic um, idea, right? It is based on the doctrines of Islam. And during the second seal event, certain things were happening that was creating havoc throughout the world. Namely, during the seventh century, there was the expansion under the Prophet Muhammad of Islam. And then the expansion of Islam during the Patriarchal Caliphate and the expansion during the Umayyad Caliphate. And so because of the spread of Islam, what happened to Southern Europe, which we know is a potential place for the fulfillment of this prophecy. Let's look at the book, the apocalyptic timeline. In the seventh century, in the Middle East, the Islamic prophet Muhammad had risen to conquer beyond the Arabian Peninsula as far as the borders of China and India to the east and as far as northern Africa to the west and even the Iberian Peninsula during the 8th century. This Islamic expansion is called the Islamic conquest or Arab conquest. This spread of Muslim power dismantled trade across the Mediterranean and eventually eradicated all long-distance trade, leaving uh, the Western Europe nations to regress to an isolated, stagnant, 
and subsistent agrarian economy. In other words, their source of wealth would be limited to their land, right? Because trade was removed. So for them to subsist, for them to survive, we had to establish certain systems. What system was needed to be established so that the people could earn from the land without the need for trade? Well, according to worldhistory.org, feudalism was the system in the 10th to the 13th century. I want to pause there for a while. Remember, there's an event that we're looking for that will be fulfilled after 800 AD. And feudalism was a system in the 10th to the 13th century. European medieval societies where a social hierarchy was established based on local administrative control and the distribution of land into units. Yes, a landowner or lord gave a fief along with a promise of military and legal protection in return for a payment of some kind from the person who received it, like a vassal. And so because of Islamic, the Islamic conquests, and also because of the initial idea of jihad, many people who owned land, well, they needed protection. And so to get protection, they had established feudalism, which established a social hierarchy. So if you were a lord, you had some land, you could hire people to work for you, you could hire people to protect you, like a soldier, right? And you have people like a vassal that can provide work for you. So that is what feudalism is all about. But right, the payment of the vassal to the Lord typically came in the form of feudal service, which, which could mean military service or the regular payment of produce or money. Both Lord and vassal were free men. And the term feudalism is not generally applied to the relationship between the unfree peasantry, the serfs or the villains and the person of higher social rank on those whose land they labor. And so with feudalism, a system was created so that you can have people working for you according to certain rules. And one of those rules is the establishment of a hierarchy. And so the feudal society in medieval Europe, you know, if you were a king, the church, you were up there. You got the nobles, you got the lords, and at the very bottom, you got the serfs, right? You got the serfs. These were the peasants. These were the poor people. And so what happened was, because of feudalism, serfs were exploited for their labor. Labor exploita exploitation prevailed in the European feudal society in the name of serfdom because these people who owned a lot of land, well, they wanted to control, they wanted to maximize what the land can produce. Because remember, their trading capacity is greatly reduced because of the Islamic conquest. And so they wanted to exploit uh, their, their laborers. Labor exploitation prevailed in the European feudal society in the name of serfdom, which refers to the condition in medieval Europe in which a tenant farmer was bound to hereditary plot of land and to the will of his landlord. Virtually all aspects of a serf's life were committed in service to his lord. This bondage of serfdom was even inherited to the serf's descendants. Despite the restricted freedom 
that encompassed the lifestyle of a serf bound to a land and its owners, serfs differed from slaves in that serfs were able to have money. That's the big difference. With their money, serfs paid rent or taxes to their lords and even bought their freedom with an amount large enough to purchase upon land. They worked for their lords Mondays through Saturdays and also worked on the pieces of land provided by their lords to feed their family, living a life of travail. And so we know we identify two things here. We have the feudal system, which allows for people who have power and money and who are at the top of the social hierarchy to take advantage of people at the bottom, right, to control their wages. And so this is what Revelation 6, 5 to 6 is talking about when it says a pair of scales. It actually represents a yoke of slavery. But the people are still given a day's wage. And so it's not technically completely slavery. It is considered a yoke because those who are serfs, they are beholden to their Lord in everything that they do. They have to ask permission to where they go. They did not have freedom at all. The only difference between a slave and a serf is a serf is able to make what? Their own living, their own money. And it's noteworthy, it's noteworthy to point out that the serfs were paid per day for most of the feudal era from the 10th to the 13th century AD. At the end of a day's work, they were paid a wage for the day rather than for the task. And the payment for the work that the serfs did was in the Holy Bible, a measure of wheat for a day's wage. That word day's wage is denarian, which was a serf's pay for the day, and that a serf was only paid a measure of wheat per day. This, serf, this wage for serfs was a severely discounted rate compared to the wage paid to other classes of freemen, like the vassals. In other words, serfs were exploited. They took advantage of the serfs, right? In return for protection, justice, and rights to toil in the manor's fields, but only allowed to survive at a subsistence level. This is why it's an oppressive system, taking advantage of the serfs. Hence, it is called a yoke of slavery. Not only have they oppressed the serfs, under feudalism, according to the rules, and you know, whenever a serf becomes a serf serving a lord, they would have like a big ceremony. There's a big ceremony around that. And in that ceremony, there are certain rituals that legally bind them together. And once bound to their landowners, serfs had to pay service or dues to their lords in cash, produce, labor, or any combination of them. In addition, serfs were not allowed to move permanently or marry without the Lord's approval. Virtually all aspects of a serf's life were committed in service to his Lord. This bondage of serfdom was even inherited to the serf's descendants. This is why it's called a yoke. This is why it's called a bondage in the Holy Bible. And so the seal event represented by uh, the third seal, the writer represents feudalism which gives people who are wealthy and who are lords, noblemen, who own land to take advantage 
and controlled the wages of the people who were called serfs. And because there's this hierarchy between the noble and the serfs, serfs were not allowed to have luxurious items like grapes or wine and oil. That's reserved only for the free men or the noblemen, but not for the serfs. This is why we believe the fulfillment of that seal event was the establishment of feudalism. And those who were affected by it were the serfs. And so we know that the seal events were unprecedented. It's like the first time it happened, right? And feudalism, that was the first time it happened in the 10th century. It influences the course of history and gives birth to new ideas, philosophies, and systems that affect the world even today. And so when we look at feudalism, how does it impact us even today? Well, according to Karl Marx and Ben Fowles, this is what it says from the book, Capital, a Critique of Political Economy. This is where it says, the, the economic structure of capitalistic society. How many here are familiar with capitalistic society? I'm sure all of us are affected by capitalism, right? We are, we are all affected by capitalism. The economic structure of capitalistic society has grown out of the economic structure of feudal society. The dissolution of the latter uh, set free the elements of the former. The starting point of the development that gave rise to the wage labor as well as to the capitalist was the servitude of the labor. The, the advance consisted in a change of form of this servitude in the transformation of feudal exploitation into capitalist exploitation. And so today, when we think of capitalism, and we know we are being exploited by these capitalists, they control everything, including inflation and whatnot, right? It actually comes from the idea of feudalism, right? We just have a different form of servitude from feudal exploitation to capitalist exploitation. But the concept remains the same. And so what we have in 534 AD, papacy, 800 AD, terrorism, 1000 AD, feudalism, and serfdom. And when we think of papacy, the chief, the chief work represented by the papacy is deception. The replacement of the Ten Commandments, um, the replacement of Sabbath, the bringing in of pagan beliefs into Christianity, and then terrorism, of course, violence, feudalism, and then, of course, oppression. So, yeah, deception, violence, oppression, and feudalism, even today, the, the ideas remain the same, right? Many people today are still being oppressed. But did you know that feudalism was brought to an end? It did not last long. It was from the 10th to the 13th century, right? Remember the report uh, from worldhistory.org? From the 10th to the 13th century AD, feudalism, about several hundred years. But it turns out it would be put to an end by the events of the fourth seal. This is why when we look at our timeline, it all connects one to the other, doesn't it? This is why we're pretty confident this is probably what the Bible was talking about. And so we will look next week at how feudalism was brought to an end by the events of the fourth 
seal. One thing we know, the events of Revelation, when the seals are being opened, it's bringing judgment one after the other upon the whole world, right? And we're only being barely scratching the surface. We're only in the third seal. And when you go all the way to the trumpets and to the woes, it gets really bad. It gets really bad. Okay, but what do we need to know, especially now, because it seems like Yahuwah is accelerating the sending of the Son so that we can receive his salvation. We know we can expect many cataclysmic events. We can expect disasters because of climate change. We can expect economic collapse. We can expect violence and war and famines and plagues. Remember, all of those events are going to happen, whether we like it or not. It's to be expected. And as you will find in next week's lesson, we ought to be concerned and be prepared at the same time. Because many events that will bring about terror and bring about violence and bring about a lack of safety, a feeling of helplessness, it's going to be pronounced during the end times. And we are in the end times. And so when we are preparing for the sending of Yahusha HaMashiach, what must we do now? When we feel unsafe, whenever we hear about earthquakes, whenever we hear about storms and floods and typhoons, whenever we hear about wars and rumors of wars, what should be our response as people of Yahuwah? Let's read the final passage of our studies today. In the book of Psalm 46, 1 to 3 and 10 to 11, God is our refuge and strength, always ready to help in times of trouble. So we will not fear when earthquakes come, the mountains crumble into the sea, let the oceans roar and foam, let the mountains tremble as the waters surge. Be still and know that I am God. I will be honored by every nation. I will be honored throughout the world. Yahuwah of heaven's armies is here among us. The God of Israel is our fortress. Brothers and sisters, there's going to be many events that will take place that will bring fear in the hearts of people all over the world. It doesn't matter if you're a third world country. It doesn't matter if you're a superpower like China or the United States of America. It is irrelevant. The whole world will be affected by what the end will bring. And so our response should be one and one only. Make Yahuwah our refuge, our strength, and our fortress. Let us not place our hope and trust in the strength of man, in the strength of his wealth, in his wisdom. No. Let us place our hope in the one who can protect us. Let us make Yahuwah our refuge, our strength, because he is always ready to help his people in times of trouble. And so brethren, let us learn to cry upon Yahuwah. Let us learn to make him our fortress, our refuge, and our strength. Let us stand and we shall pray together. Everlasting Abba, Yahuwah, gracious Yahuwah, you are compassionate. You are filled with love. You are kind to all of us. You know who we are. You know the contents of our mind, our heart. There are many instances in our life when we have expressed doubt, when we have fallen, 
when we have sinned. But when we cry out to you in true repentance, you listen to our cries. And because of your long suffering, because of who you are, a father who loves his children, you bring us back unto yourself. You give us opportunity after opportunity. You do not give up on us, even when sometimes we give up on ourselves. You have always been there. It has been proven in our life. In times of trouble, it is true. You are ever present as though you were standing right beside us. When we feel your embrace, when we feel your closeness, the troubles of life, the dangers of the world, they do not matter any longer. They do not have an impact on us. When we make you our refuge, we find safety in your embracing arms. Father, Yahuwah, Abba, respond to the cries of your people from all over the world, all of us. We experience what the world also experiences, trials, persecution, many kinds of sicknesses, troubles, hardships, and poverty. Father, listen to your people. We do not belong to the world. We belong to you. That is our great advantage. You know our voices. You respond to our cries for help from heaven above. As an assembly, as we meet together today in worship, may you respond now to our voice. Come to our rescue. Deliver us from our troubles. Heal us, please, of our sicknesses. Give us strength, especially when we feel weak. We know, Father, we can expect many tribulations. Help us to bear them all. When we feel like we can no longer go on, may we sense, may we feel your presence in our midst. That would be sufficient, loving Abba, for us to be able to finish our race. And so we beseech you, send forth your spirit now, please, loving Abba, and strengthen the faith of your people, our King Yahushua, your Lord of Lords and King of Kings. How we long for your appearing. It is what inspires us every day. We look up to you. We seek your counsel. We seek your wisdom. Help us to be like you in every aspect of our life. Father, please bless your people throughout the world. Prepare us, please, for our worship services. May you continue to provide for our needs. We ask everything, loving Father, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahushua HaMashiach. Amen.